So we are up to wise speech on the Eightfold Path. Um, the first of the ethical factors, which are wise or right speech, right action, right livelihood. I just wanna name um, these factors in general first. They're often taught first. I did them in, in the reverse order just because that's the way I think of them as my practice is what helps me be the most skillful in the world. But the reverse order is, is I think the way it's more traditionally taught. And I love how uh, Beth Roth in this beautiful article in Tricycle Magazine, I put the link to it in the newsletter. Uh, if you want to read her whole article on why speech, I highly recommend it. But she she talks about the the ethical factors um, uh, in this way in the Buddhist tradition. The Buddha taught that ethical conduct is the foundation of meditation practice and is also the ground upon which our life and our spiritual journey rests. The Pali word for uh, um, ethical conduct is sila, S-I-L-A, and it's, it is a practice in making ethical life choices that actually support good conditions for well-being and positive relationships in our life. I don't know about you, but for me, I really grew up with a very strong concept that being ethical is what I should do in order to be good. Um, and I love this powerful flip of that orientation. Um, the, the Buddhist understanding of ethical conduct is very much that ethical conduct is at the root of what ultimately makes life feel good. Um, it's really not about being good, but if we want to align ourselves on a path that brings true relief from suffering for ourselves and our others and others, um, ethical conduct is at the at the root of that path of relief of suffering. So in the Buddhist tradition, ethics are seen very much as gifts, um, gifts we give ourselves and others. Uh, again, from Beth Roth, she says, by undertaking ethical trainings, we offer a supreme gift to other beings and to ourselves the gift of freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. So that's a powerful gift. The gift of freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. That's a gift I want in my life. And it's a gift I think, you know, everyone um, is likely to name uh, that this is what we want in our life. So it begs the, the, the question, if ethical conduct is what brings this gift of freedom, then why don't we do it more often? <laughs> you know, why, why isn't it enacted at, at, a, a, at a higher level um, just in general? 
And you know, I mean, we all know the answer. There is this powerful under, undertow that we work with towards reactivity. Um, uh, and in, the, in Buddhist terms, that reactivity, that constrictive um, um, happening in, in a moment on our life uh, is spelled out as clinging, aversion, and delusion. It's that, that energy of I want or I don't want. <laughs> I'm either pulling it to me or I'm trying to push it away or delusion. I'm just clouding out. Uh, I would say our society is undertaking a new level of experimenting with delusion as um, clear living and pretty easy to see how much suffering that's resulting in in the world. So those, those Buddhist terms of clinging, aversion, and delusion, to me, that's the same thing that's spelled out in um, modern neuroscience terms of our survival reactivity of fight, flight, freeze, um, manifesting in some maladaptive coping strategy, a coping strategy that actually is um, typically not working. Because that undertow is so strong, I mean, every one of us <laughs> knows it for our, our personal self, ethical living becomes a practice that we deliberately, intentionally undertake in order to support ourselves in finding a stronger path towards freedom instead of getting locked into the constrictive oppression of our own internal reactivity. And the root of this practice, this ongoing practice, is getting really smart about observing what happens in our life when we get it right, kind of the joy and the ease of it. Somebody asked me how my, my week was. Um, um, this week uh, before the group started this morning, I really had a, um, a powerful week in, in being able to appreciate what it feels like when I find a right alignment in a challenging situation, the relief, the freedom, the joy of that. Not easy, but, but um, a, a lesson in what works well. And naturally, we mess up an awful lot too. And so the practice is learning to observe the effect of when we mess up without constricting into self-judgment, self-loathing, um, self-denigration, you know, all of those, those things that are just another level of reactivity. But being able to stand with our feet on the ground and have an honest wise, compassionate assessment of what works and what doesn't work and use that information as simple learning moving forward. So this basic learning to observe cause and effect in a meaningful, useful, practical way. Um, this is the basic teaching in Buddhist psychology of karma and I really hesitate to bring up that word because it is so painfully misunderstood. So often, 
I even in in Buddhist traditions, I've heard teachers talk about karma in a way that was just like, oh my gosh, did you really just say what you just said could be interpreted as somebody deserved to get that cancer because they did bad things in their life in the in the past. That's not what what this teaching is ever supposed to be pointing to in that way. It is far more complicated in in a whole picture, but in a small like personal learning way. If I can just look at the impact of my actions and learn from the effect of that, then that's useful. That's like just simply useful. So I want to share an example in terms of wise speech. When I was young, I I think like most people, definitely explored in a practice of non-truth telling and and did it without a whole lot of thought, um, thinking that maybe there were times that that was useful. (laughs) At some point, and I'm going to share an example of the first time I can just so clearly remember the pain of getting caught in my non-truths or just spending so much time worrying about the about getting caught in my non-truths that began to become more obvious to me than whatever it was I was trying to gain from from the lie so the example I remember um, very vividly was in second grade when I was eight years old Uh, And it's kind of a sad setup. I mean, it's not kind of a sad setup. It is. I mean, I was seven or eight years old in second grade having a conversation with a group of girls. And this is what our conversation was. And this would have been like 1971, 70, 71, 72, somewhere right, right in there. We were talking about how much we weighed and who weighed the the least amount. At that age, we were already deeply entrained with this idea that um, a female, a feminine female image was better as lighter than heavier. So when it came my turn to reveal my true weight at age eight, I lied. I said I was um, lighter than, than I actually was. And if you just like look at this in terms of what we just said, Buddhist terms, aversion. I mean, there was, I, I can still remember the fear when it was going to be my turn and they they were going to want to know my true weight. I mean, I remember, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't be that much. Um, and clinging, wanting, wanting to cling to a body image that had to do with acceptance thinking I would be better accepted if I weighed a certain amount. Definitely, uh, you can switch the lens to the neuroscience in a heartbeat. That was that neuroscience sense of, am I good enough? Am I acceptable as I, if I weigh as much as I actually do? And in that moment of um, reactivity, I thought no. And whoosh, out of my mouth. Came, came a weight that was not mine. And of course, in the circle of girls, one of the other girls looked me up and down and said, no, you're not. I mean, just instantly called me out on it. And I was like, yes, I am. And she said, 
Next time you come over to my house, I'm going to put you on scales and we're going to prove you are not. And that just like set up this whole Tara of going to her house. <laughs> so she was a friend. She was somebody I wanted to go to her house. And, and now I was like living with this Tara that she was actually going to pull out the scales and set me on them um, and find out how much I weighed. And at that point, it clearly wasn't anymore about my weight. At that point, the whole weight thing, that was just stupid. I was kind of done with that kind of conversation. What was embarrassing me was getting caught in the lie. So, of course, she invited me over and we had this really fun play afternoon. But the whole time in my mind, she can pull out the scales now. She can pull out the scales now. But, you know, of course she wasn't. She didn't want to stand on them either. Uh, You know, at eight, we were very culturally entrained and she never did. But what stuck with me was how much pain I was carrying, self-inflicted pain from telling this lie, from this lack of truth telling. So, you know, of course, since that time, many times things have slipped out of my mouth (laughs) um, since then. But every time it does, I'm really aware of these words as the equivalent to self-inflicted pain. Yeah, this is this is a way I draw back the arrow and shoot myself in the foot with it. So this is one thing I really like about these teachings. I love about these teachings. There's nothing esoteric about this at all. As an eight-year-old second grader, I could get the real-life lesson in what causes suffering and what relieves suffering in that moment, there is a basic practicality to these deeply spiritual teachings that's remarkable. When we really begin to understand this very straightforward instruction of how to listen with wisdom and compassion to our mind, body, heart feedback system and learn to use that information as instruction and what allows us to move onto a path that's about the freedom from suffering instead of the causing of suffering. You know, and of course, reading the information offered in our feedback systems is confusing, especially if we're in a cloud of reactivity. So this is a practice. We have to intentionally learn how to listen with greater depths of wisdom and compassion and kindness to the information that we're getting. But the reality is, which is stunning when we really think about it, all the information is already right here. It's all here that can tell us how we move beyond. Um, If even I as an eight-year-old had that clear sense, it's already part of how we are wired. So I just want to say, you know, it's very rare that an actual lie slips out of my mouth now. But when it does, I try very hard to catch it in the moment and say something like, you know, to whoever heard it, 
oops, <laughs> I'm not sure why I just said that, but the reality is, and then fill in the blank of what's the more appropriate um, truth or, you know, explain the delusion behind whatever, whatever, you know, the wanting or whatever it was that was behind it, but really try to catch it. And that feels so much better. That's just as a letting go and a relief um, compared to a caring of it. I want to share a beautiful modeling I saw of this. When I did one of my first trainings in teaching MBSR, um, this was probably in 2002, I was with a group of 12 uh, in a teacher training for MBSR, a week-long teacher training, and two of the days John Kabat-Zinn led our, our training program. It was a beautiful two days of teaching. He had just come off a month-long uh, silent retreat, literally the day before, and was able to like carry this deeply grounded presence into this remarkable two-day gift that he gave us. At one point in it, he led a body scan, a lovely body scan, except it didn't include the left arm, no left arm in the body scan. At the end of it, one of my co-trainees raised his hand and said, I'm just curious why you didn't cover the left arm. Without missing a beat, John looked at him and said, eh, I was trying to see if any of y'all would catch it. Any of y'all were awake to the meditation. And then went on, and everyone laughed. And, and then he went on with his teaching. And just a short bit later, he stopped himself and he went, wait a minute. What I just said? That actually wasn't true. I didn't know I didn't do the left arm. And for whatever reason, I felt a need to cover it up to present myself in some way to y'all that was better than I was feeling in that moment. So I apologize. I forgot the left arm. It was so beautiful the way he did that. And that gift of trans transparency and modeling was just lovely. So I offer that as how we can learn inner, inwardly, name, accept, and move on. So I think I'm going to stop here. There's, I mean, we could just spend a year on right speech, which we obviously won't. Next week, uh, I really want to talk about the traditional Buddhist um, psychology teachings around wise speech. And I think I'm going to finish with a quote from John Travis, which is one I come back to a lot. So he says, can I stay in my body and speak from my heart? That's a beautiful practice in wise speech. Can I stay in my body, authentically be awake to all that's getting triggered and coming up in a way that has compassion and wisdom and still speak from my heart? So let's pause for just a minute. If you were to consider something in your day today, 
or this week, let a wise, compassionate speech be useful for? How do you help support the conditions for staying in your body and speaking from your heart? Thank you.